Welcome back. This is part two of our incredible conversation with our friend Reggie Williams, CEO of Procurement Resources, and ENI's Titus Morton, Executive Director, Supplier Diversity Sourcing. If you haven't heard part one, I'd recommend you do that first to hear Reggie's take on the history of supplier diversity and what it really means, stakeholder capitalists, investing back into your communities, and trends that are proving why programs like these are a net benefit to all stakeholders. So without further ado, let's pick up where we left off. Here again is Reggie Williams. When I coined the term supplier diversity in 1985, I was attacked. I was attacked even by national organizations like NMSDC. You're watering down the process. You're making it more difficult for us to fight for the crumbs at the table. My position was, the more inclusive we are, the stronger we are. My position was, it's not about me, it's about we. So the tent is getting larger. And this tent getting larger is driven by basic fundamental business relationships. And what are business relationships? People do business with people they know, they like, and they trust. You don't get know, like, and trust from a piece of paper where somebody has checked the box and say I'm minority. You get that by forming relationships. It's supplier diversity is relationship driven. I would agree. So this best practice is one of the most effective I have ever seen. It's called lunch and learn. Lunch dash N dash learn. Here's what it is. Companies that are serious about looking at possibilities establish an informal process for dialogue and, and conversation. Getting to know the individuals so they remove all of the anxieties and get down to business. Mm -hmm. My clients invite in four vendors every quarter. You don't do this every, nobody has time to do this every month. You do it once a quarter. You search four times a year and you make certain that you've invited those most underutilized groups. Oh, I didn't even tell you. Mm. The vast majority of companies and universities are purchasing from minorities and women at less than 4%. Less than 4% of the goods and services. Now, you know they have more than 4% women in, in, in student body. That tells you something right there. So Lunch and Learn is a virtual process. And the prospective candidate firm is able to share their, what they bring to the value proposition. 80% of the vendors we submit for Lunch and Learn are asked to come in and present to the companies that we represent. 40% win contracts. That's great. And they didn't win it because she was a woman. They didn't win it because this guy was Hispanic. They want it because they present a compelling and irrefutable value proposition. That includes everything from reduced costs, mm -hmm. cost avoidance, use of technology, mm -hmm. innovation. Remember, I'm a CPO. 
I'm 40 years as a chief procurement officer. I am not liable to latch on to a vendor simply because that vendor happens to be a certain gender. That vendor must bring to the table a process through which he or she is helping my company to achieve this aim. And here's that aim. How can you help me achieve customer value? Mm -hmm. If you can't show me that you can do that, you have no value for me. So would it be safe to say that the firms in the example that you provided are actually solution providers? Well said. That's the reason why they're being, that's the reason why they're being <laughs> brought on board? Well said. Well said. You couldn't have said it better, Titus. You couldn't have said it better. Let me give you an example of one. One of our clients is Delta Airlines. And by the way, we've, we've just picked up United Airlines, so Delta is no longer one of our clients. In some of our I- industries, they're very competitive, and they don't, if, you're with, if you're with Coke, you're not going to be with Pepsi. So at Delta Airlines, we had 112 different vendors in IT services. A hundred and just think about the cost of managing a database of, of vendors, 112 vendors, everything from systems integration to cabling to programming to cybersecurity. I could give you all kinds of things that each of them did. Mm-hmm. Many of them were small firms, two and three people. Some were companies of one person. We brought in a minority firm that has 25 years of tested management expertise to manage IT services. It happened to have been the most prominent company in IT outsourcing, a company called Agile One. Their work was outstanding. We brought them in, lunch and learn, just like I just told you, cut the contract, They started working and brought in under their umbrella all of those 112 IT suppliers under one umbrella called Agile One. Mm. That Agile One contract was consummated under one umbrella, meaning there's one expenditure. All of them became minority. In addition, she provided, her name is Janice Howroyd, woman, African-American, she provided in the first year of the contract, $1.2 million in cost savings. That's amazing. So this is, you know, this is, this exciting work. So, so not only did she bring cost savings, she also helped to reduce the supplier base. Big time, big time. Think of all the cost of managing 112 vendors. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, providing value-added solutions. You got it. That's exactly correct. We've saved money, and we're now in the fifth year of the contract. And I would imagine that they are probably seeing savings year over year. Year over year. That's, that's a compelling, compelling argument. Well, that's why I have a real anxiety over this discussion that's in the news. People are giving a, a bad word to diversity, when, re- when diversity is not an issue, it is, let's understand what diversity is. Let, let's have your listeners understand. 
If you're going to reach the goal of stakeholder capitalism, which is total inclusion and participation in the economic system, that's what I'm about. I'm an unabashed stakeholder capitalist. If you're going to create that, you must create a model that includes everyone, but does not require that you compromise anything. That's what I've got to constantly hammer into people that I meet. So you first start with diversity. You create a pool of vendors that look just like your customers. That's step one. Step two, by the way, is to include in your competitive analysis on, in determining best value, mm-hmm. those vendors from that pool that can meet your expectations. And if they're good, if their value proposition is compelling, they'll be included. Mm-hmm. And last, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's really equity. It's diversity, inclusion, and equity. You must have diversity in order to have inclusion. And then inclusion creates equity. Diversity is a critical element of that process. You must start with a diverse pool if you're ever going to get to inclusion. Agreed. Agreed. That's well well said. Well said. And you're seeing time after time after time of examples where this is coming into fruition amongst your customer base. No question. And in my space, um, that's why we pay little attention to this, the, the political dogma. Uh, I deal with companies, major corporations, who get it. And as a result of that, they have uh, established strong bonds with each segment of their customer base. Uh, the customer base that is most adamant about being included and is often overlooked is LGBTQ, that community. LGBTQ community business owners buy things. In fact, in some products, they over-index. The clients that I work with have a policy that is inclusive of having this group. They're now, uh, NCLCG, I think it's called, actually certifies minority businesses. The tent is getting larger. And the tent doesn't have a door that's closed to anyone. The more we are all aligned in this process called stakeholder capitalism, the greater the benefits to all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to exclude anyone. Reggie, when you think about the customers that get it, I think about our listening audience. And you mentioned earlier about the economic impact into local communities, whether that be communities of color, could be any other diverse representation that you've given. Would it be fair to say that when it comes to uh, the education space and higher higher learning, that the pool of resources that they are trying to affect, that local community, those individuals can impact their bottom line and that it is imperative for them to uh, include those individuals in their procurement processes? It's critical. Let me let me give you an example. We're currently under contract in Indianapolis with the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce. One of the biggest uh, stakeholders in that process is the Indianapolis public school system. Okay. 
the Indianapolis public school system has a supplier diversity manager. And her job is to identify ways in which the school district, which is pretty large, can partner with small businesses, not just minority, Mm -hmm. but within the community in which the school district operates. Since they've done that, they've gone from 3% up to 18% over five years. And that means, remember now, their requirement is not that you simply be diverse, that you be woman, minority, but that you also represent the community in which the school district operates. Mm -hmm. That means there is economic spillover from the school district directly to the stakeholders that support that educational process. So it is absolutely vital for for academic institutions to engage their local community. I also think about the the future growth of uh, the community of color. You know, as we look at the census data that shows us the increased number of individuals that are will be in these growing populations. Uh, I think that it's another driver for higher ed and also K-12 uh, to consider uh, supply diversity programs. Can you share your thoughts about that in terms of the growing economics in these communities of color and how that could impact the bottom line of some of these uh, universities? I would say the most significant process or tool for engaging your local community is for the universities to establish mentorship relationships. Don't just sit back as a university and say, oh, we hope that, that that the school district will do such. Form the relationships through partnerships and strategic alliances where you are mentoring. And for example, in Atlanta, there are about at least six different mentorship programs going on between the universities, everything from the Georgia Tech University, which has the most outstanding process, that where they are mentoring kids in the schools and the high schools and even the middle schools. They are investing in their community in the people that make up their community so that they can reap the benefit as a leader in the academic community. I love that idea, and I think more schools can do that. But I have a real problem with a school or an academic institution that says we support supplier diversity, and they have not adapted to this very simple tool, forming relationships and sharing mentorship educational growth Mm -hmm. with the communities where they're located. Mm -hmm. The most significant one is Georgia Tech. They have one at Clark University. They have one at Emory, Mm -hmm. where I'm located. But Georgia Tech is a a national model. That's amazing. It seems as if they're actually pouring into their own future. Very well said. Very well said. Now, this mentorship it needs to start even younger than high school. It could start even as as young as middle school. Georgia Tech is dealing with the sciences, which is STEM. And for people of color, like you said, they are actually dealing with people of color and poor white communities. 
not just people of color. They're providing classes, training, mentorship. They're doing a great job. Reggie, are there any best practices with what maybe people should be measuring? We, you had the, the one mention about looking at what your students do after the fact. We know that so many schools out there have some sort of a program, and it might be from the cradle, and it, they might have been doing this for 20 years, but there might be best practices that other schools are doing in one, what they measure, two, how they measure it, or three, how they analyze the data, four, maneuvering from good to great, right? So they might say, great, we grew our diversity program by 18%, but what does that mean? Or what is it doing to the community? How does it impact? Are are there any best practices that you can think of that schools or even the private sector is doing, taking this information and making the program better? Best practices. In, In the academic community, a best practice, it may be different than a best practice in the commercial mainstream. In the commercial mainstream, let me give you my clients' best practices. I've given you six or seven best practices. I gave you lunch and learn, Mm -hmm. fail safe. Mm -hmm. I gave you mentorship. But there's a best practice that I think I don't know how it would manifest in an academic setting. Companies that are the leaders, these are corporations that are members of this group I've told you about the billion dollar round table. There's two important measurements of data that they really look at. They look at a year to year increased participation. That means year to year spend. The average in among BDR companies is 7.3% increase, which is huge in some ways. That's a B, they look at, and this is pretty important, achieving a minimum of $1 billion in, this is just a cash figure, a minimum of $1 billion in spend with minority women and diverse suppliers. Now, what that doesn't take into consideration, and that's this important data set, that doesn't take into consideration the amount of your spend as a percentage of total discretionary spend. So that one billion would be irrelevant, for example, somebody like Walmart does 200 billion. So it's important to note that only has real relevance for me in the context of total discretionary spend. You follow? I do, yeah. Item C data. This one is hot. Companies evaluate the extent to which they have engaged strategic partners, suppliers, in their core business processes. Let me say it again. They evaluate not just whether they've used a vendor that's cleaning the toilets, but whether they're, if they're, again, General Motors, whether they're dealing with a vendor that's actually making a component of the car like the tires or the steel, their core business process. I would submit none of your listeners has thought about that. None. That would mean everything from your academic products, which are books, etc., to essential services that are provided at a professional level. 
I just got off the phone speaking with a company which is called Aerial Capital. John Rogers, Melody Hobson. They are a company that provides financial analysis and financial management for investments for major corporations. Now, that's quite different than selling somebody toner ink for their machines. But that's the core business of a company like that they work, they're working with, American Express. This is significant. This indicator, or as you say, this data set, for me is more important than any other. Because it means that there are long-term sustainable relationships that will follow. Because they're a part of your vital mainstream revenue stream. And that means they're much more integral to your business. Now, I would submit no one listening to this has this going. No one. I would imagine no academic setting has minority companies. I, I would say no one, but I doubt it if, if anyone has done any of that at that third level. They're probably measuring whether there's year-to-year increase. They, they probably measure what is the percentage of increase uh, as a percentage of discretionary spend, but they're not measuring whether they're, there's engagement in the core business of the university or the, or the school. Yeah, those are, those are some higher level um, parameters in, in terms of measurement. Um, only the best of the best are measuring things to that, to that capacity. Exactly. Only the best of the best. Did that answer your question, David? Yeah, that that's fantastic. It's um, it's really valuable. Obviously, the the history that you have with this, it's hard to get this unraveled in a few minutes that we have together. So you being able to unpack it at such a high level, and I feel like I need to listen to this again to really understand all of the best practices you gave. Best, this word best practice is, is so misused. A best practice isn't best for everybody. <laughs> Organizations need to examine best practices in the context of their business reality. Given most academic settings and their business reality, it means a practice that can be employed without additional budget, a practice that can be put in place without jumping through hoops in the hierarchy, a practice that can have direct and significant uh, and defined benefits. So what does that mean? That means if you listen to what you've heard with, with Reggie and Titus today, there are a couple that really fit, that are no brainers. Lunch and learn is a no brainer. It gets the ball started. I would submit most of your listeners don't do lunch and learn. What COVID has taught us is through these virtual meetings like Zoom, it's a no-brainer. We can do this without a lot of work and without hiring somebody called supplier diversity. Everybody's hiring a supplier diversity manager. If you have the corporate will, you don't need some high-level executive that's going to tell people what to do. This is common sense. 
form relationships with these diverse suppliers and you'll find, wow, I didn't know there was anybody out there that could do this. And the lunch and learn cannot be limited to any one group. I have a real problem. This whole business of supplier diversity is not code for black folks. It means diversity. The most underutilized group are Native Americans, followed by African-American males. African-American women, interestingly enough, are doing well. Women are doing well. So we've got to find a way to bring to the table those groups that we really need to form relationships with. We need to form relationships with veterans. These veterans that are coming back from, from Iraq and Afghanistan and have formed businesses, we have a responsibility to establish relationships and to provide opportunities to them. And if we do this through a virtual format, nobody's got to get on a plane it may be a year before there's a contract and before we consummate a deal, but at least we're not sitting back saying, oh, we have a supplier diversity program. Look at our data. What have you done to form the relationship? Data is irrelevant if there's no action behind it. Yeah, Titus, uh, such a dynamic uh, individual with such a long history. I know he said he's been in this for 40 years, so I'm guessing he started when he was three. Uh, so, uh, he's obviously has a long history of working in this. And I thought it was really interesting that he coined the phrase supplier diversity and to have someone like that with so much experience on not how to implement something, but how to make it excellent. And the few takeaways that I, I took from here, definitely the stakeholder capitalism and learning more about that and his, his definition of it. And then really what it means to partner what it means to partner not only with your local community, but with all of the resources that you have at hand, including your graduates. You have all of these students that have left. What are they doing? How are they contributing? How have you left an impact on them that will leave a legacy for what's to come in your community? Agreed, David. I also thought it was very important that he talked about how these programs are imperatives to um, whoever the whoever the, the company is, it could be a university, it could be a an organization, but how having a diverse supply chain is an imperative because you're actually contributing back into the individual that will actually be able to buy your goods and services. I mean, that is, you know, stakeholder capitalism at its, um, at its finest point. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cooperatively Speaking. We'd love to hear from you. If you have anything to share with us feedback, suggestions for new shows, ideas for a guest that you'd love for us to interview, send us an email at podcast at eandi.org. You can find all of our Cooperatively Speaking podcasts on our website at eandi.org forward slash podcast.